Hello, I'm Lina Khmudu. Welcome to Health Chat. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has announced new initiatives aimed at supporting scientific innovations with an initial commitment of $50 million. We will have more with Dr. Trevor Mondo, president of the Global Health Division of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But first, Ugandan medical workers have gone on a sit-down strike. They are protesting the government's failure to raise their salaries and provide personal protective equipment, or PPE. The medics include doctors, nurses, midwives, consultants, medical interns, and pharmacists. They all say they will not return to work until government makes a commitment to improve their welfare. Catherine Nambi reports from Kampala. Samuel Egadu has waited in vain for over 12 hours for medical workers to attend to his ill son at a government clinic in Kampala. He vented his frustration to VOA as he left the health center to look for an alternative. We stayed here. We never saw any doctor. There is no one who has come here to check us. We have seen to stay here is disturbing us. We want to turn him home. Up to now, they are nowhere to be seen. We want to take him for prayers now. Many patients at government hospitals have had a similar experience as health workers put down their tools in protest against their unfulfilled demands. The medical workers want government to pass a supplementary budget to meet their salary demands and also provide adequate medical supplies like oxygen and equipment that would allow them to fulfill their duties. Faith Nabshao is the Secretary General of the Federation of Uganda Medical Interns. Navishawa wondered why the president's directive to increase the salaries of interns has not yet been implemented. A president expressed disappointment about the working conditions of medical interns and gave a directive that starting July 2021, medical interns' pay is raised to half the recommended pay of their seniors in their respective cadres. Medical interns nationwide got so excited about the directive Unfortunately, five months down the road, there has been no change in the medical intern's pay. Dr. Samuel Oledo Odongo is the president of the Uganda Medical Association. He told the media in Kampala that medical staff not only endure poor working conditions, but also poor living conditions and associated risks due to mega pay. The conditions of service have further deteriorated, with a large number now dwelling in unsafe accommodation, including peri-urban slums, and where a number have been attacked, robbed, and suffered physical and sexual abuse, and severe bodily injuries while returning from their places of work at night. This must stop. This must be addressed. Dr. Odongo says the situation has been worsened by the deaths of many from COVID-19. You find a doctor who is attached to emergency unit, is actually using the same mask over and over. And the same cases is reviewing, others turn out to be COVID positive. Imagine that exposure. The medical workers are also demanding compensation for the families of colleagues who have succumbed to the coronavirus. Dr. Diana Atwine is the Permanent Secretary, Ministry of Health. She told VOA the government is committed to meeting the demands of the medical workers, especially with regard to salary enhancements.
I am very, very optimistic because this is the thing that we've been discussing and I can assure you, although sometimes government takes a while, but I, I, I can assure you, government does not lie. When it says it's going to do that, it only delays the salaries they have pro promised. It is only the processes and, and, and realigning and all, you know, those of you have been really, you know, uh, agitated that we are delaying. Please be patient. I can assure you that process has started. At least more than 1,850 medical workers are on strike. The medics want a pay rise of nearly US dollars 2,000 per month. Currently, a senior doctor earns about half that amount, while medical officers earn about $500. The medics also want the government to provide them with housing and vehicles. They say they will continue their protest until they strike a deal. This is Catherine Nambi for VON News in Kampala. In Nigeria, only 6 million out of 200 million citizens are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. The government says everyone above 18 years of age should be inoculated and that all public and civil service workers must receive a shot by December 1st, as fatalities continue to grow. From Abuja, reporter Munachi Chokes has more. Authorities have vowed to bar government employees from their offices if they are not able to show proof of vaccination against the virus. Bas Mustafa is a chairman of the Presidential Steering Committee on COVID-19 and secretary to the government of the Federation. He confirmed the policy on mandatory vaccinations while inaugurating the mass vaccination campaign against the pandemic over the weekend. Mustafa says the campaign is one of the government's strategic approaches to quickly increase the number of fully vaccinated citizens in Nigeria. All federal government employees are therefore reminded that December 1st, 2021 remains the deadline for all to show evidence of being vaccinated fully or a PCR negative test result done 72 hours before being allowed into government facilities, particularly their office. Under the effort, up to a million doses of the vaccine will be administered per day and up to about 55 million people treated by the time the initiative ends. In addition, the Nigerian Center for Disease Control, or NCDC, is helping states to implement preparedness and response activities against COVID-19. It is calling on all Nigerians to join forces and take greater responsibility for controlling the spread of the virus in a campaign called Take Responsibility. Dr. Faisal Shwaibu is the executive director of the National Primary Healthcare Development Agency. He says the organization is concerned about Nigerians who have refused to be inoculated against the virus. It is important to add that today none of the 6 million Nigerians that have received their vaccine have died as a result of the COVID-19 vaccination. What the data released by the NCDC shows is that over 80% of people who have died from COVID-19 are those who are unvaccinated. Schreiber notes that the government aims to create additional vaccination sites in several venues, including hospitals, university health centers and clinics, pharmacies, mosques, churches, corporate offices and private health facilities. 
The Minister of Health, Dr. Sage Ehanire, is also encouraging Nigerians to receive the shot. I remind all persons that by taking COVID-19 vaccine, that will be one of the proven ways to avert mass catastrophe that unfortunately has befallen some countries. The Presidential Steering Committee on COVID-19 in Nigeria says the campaign aims to have at least half of all citizens over the age of 18 inoculated by the 31st of January 2022. For VOA News, Munachi Chooks in Abuja. Cybersecurity specialists say there are thousands of social media accounts offering fake vaccination cards and promising to add vaccination records into electronic databases. Lucia Bakalitz has the story narrated by Anna Rice. Most vaccinated Americans prove they've been vaccinated by carrying a small piece of paper filled in by hand. It contains a person's full name, date of birth, type of the vaccine, number of doses, and the batch number. It was designed to inform, not protect against fraud, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. The card itself um, was meant to be a communication device between a provider and a patient that, that they, they were vaccinated and even a reminder to show if, if applicable, um, a second dose needed to be administered within a time period. But this paper is still widely used as proof of vaccination in America today. As more companies request proof of vaccination, officials say more fake cards are being used. We've seen it go from early in in 2021 from maybe receiving five to six complaints per day to now we're receiving maybe 20 to 25 complaints per day um, through our hotline of fake vaccination card complaints. Cybersecurity experts say sites offering fake vaccine cards have moved from mostly the dark net to more widely used sites on the internet. It's pretty bad. They're, they're using Facebook, Instagram, Telegram, and WhatsApp to, to market and promote these cards. In certain online groups, fake vaccination cards are being offered quite openly. And happy clients even publish their pictures with fakes. Experts from the Coalition for a Safer Web even tried it themselves. Fraudsters respond quickly and guarantee delivery throughout the U.S. Experts at Checkpoint Software Technologies say sales picked up dramatically after a federal government vaccine mandate for federal workers. The number of sellers of fake vaccine cards was increased by approximately tenfold. So we saw about a thousand sellers in August. September after the announcement, it was spiking to 10,000. Specialists at Checkpoint Software Technologies say one possible solution is to develop a unified federal vaccination database and digital cards that verify vaccination status, something some European countries are already doing. Police Bukalets in Washington, NRI's VOA News. A Kenyan recycling company is improving sanitation for slum dwellers in Nairobi and turning the waste products into fertilizer for farmers. Brenda Mulinya in Nairobi reports on the work carried out by the recycling firm Sanergy for this year's World Toilet Day. Residents at this cluster of makeshift houses have been using a facility denied to their neighbors, a toilet inside an enclosure and one they can access day and night. It's been a major selling point for the landlady who rents these homes. 
Tenants want a facility that has both day and night access to toilets. If they don't get that, they will keep moving until they get what they are looking for. Anita Mutinda is one of the tenants drawn here by the availability of the sanitation facility. She says it brings peace of mind and saves money. Life was hard out there because I had to pay five shillings every time that I needed to use a public toilet. And it was some distance from the house. Here, I don't have to pay a single cent. Mukuru Kwaruben, like many other informal settlements in Kenya's capital, is not connected to a sewerage system. An estimated 60% of the population lives with this lack of sanitation, a major factor causing communicable diseases. Elijah Gashoki is a clinical officer at the community health center. We start getting water wash diseases, conjunctivitis and skin diseases. So uh, there is a need for proper and uh, safe and adequate uh, provision of sanitation. It is a gap that Sanergy, a company providing sanitation solutions, says it is bridging. Sanergy provides dry toilets that separate liquid and dry waste and also helps with waste management in the informal settlement. Sanergy's Sheila Kibudu says the company believes in not wasting any waste. On a regular basis, we make sure that we provide a waste management service where all of the sanitation waste generated is then safely removed and transported to our organics recycling factory um, for processing along with other forms of organic waste. The toilet waste is collected daily and mixed with other organic waste from the community. It is then processed at Sanaji's plant on the outskirts of Nairobi and turned into organic fertilizer and other agricultural inputs like high-protein feed for livestock. Um, one of the biggest challenges farmers are facing today is uh, soil infertility. And so what the organic fertilizer does is that it helps restore the soil fertility and that way farmers can improve their yields. Sanaji believes more and more farmers will be served as it keeps the circular economy model of turning trash into useful products going while providing a necessary service. Currently, there are over 5,000 toilets spread across 11 informal settlements areas in Nairobi, serving over 140,000 residents. Brenda Molina for VOA News, Nairobi. Multiple sclerosis is a disease of the central nervous system that disrupts the communication between the brain and the body. VOA's Pfizer El Masri talks to a woman diagnosed with the disease about her journey to find a healthier life and learn about the positive changes she made to help relieve the symptoms of MS. So this is exfoliator. This is avocado and sea moss exfoliator. As you can see, we still do everything 100% by hand. And of course, everything's all organic. Hi, I'm Natalie Schultz-White, and I am the founder and CEO of Be Well Company Skincare. We launched Be Well in 2017. Sea moss is a wonderful nutrient you can add to your uh, smoothies. It's great, great for the skin. Had no idea I was going to start this company. So I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in July, on July 2nd in 2014 and um, also known as MS, the shorter version, which is much easier to say, especially when you slur words like me. That's one of my MS symptoms is I slur words. Um, when I get really tired um, it, or, or my feet start to kind of drop or my 
speech um, starts to slur, my vision can go a little wonky. And these are all MS symptoms for me, and, but it can look like I'm drunk. So if you don't know me, <laughs> you would think, oh, she's been drinking. <laughs> but I can control these symptoms today through food. So as I began researching and I found a book by Dr. Terry Walls, I consumed it within three days and it was very thick and very technical because she's a doctor who, who reversed her MS symptoms. And I began implementing immediately all her ways of clean eating and clean living, but it was mainly clean eating I focused on. And so we got rid of everything in the house that was had preservatives or had sugar. And um, we just really focused on real whole organic foods. This is a fun fact. I have a lot of shaking from my MS that can get that can get kind of crazy sometimes. And this helps me work on my fine motor skills too. So it's a win-win. I get to pour lots of love into the products and work on my MS shape. How I feel about my MS diagnosis um, is the same as I felt a week after I had the diagnosis. I get so much joy out of sharing the products and inspiring people to open their eyes to understand that, oh, natural can be this amazing. You are listening to Health Chat on Voice of America. It is time for a short break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Health Chat. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has announced new initiatives aimed at supporting scientific innovations. The foundation is committing an initial $50 million to support science and innovation in the global south during a 10-year program with awards in science leadership fellowships to 14 African scientists. For more insights, I spoke with Dr. Trevor Mondol, president of the Global Health Division at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Take a listen. Trevor Mondale, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. First of all, would you enlighten us on what the grand challenges are and how they create a synergy towards uh, global health and development in general? Well, you know, the grand challenges has been a cluster of initiatives that we've had, uh, which culminates every year in the grand challenges meeting. And we've had 17 of those in 11 different countries. Actually, just before the current pandemic crisis, our last live meeting was in uh, Addis Ababa in Ethiopia in 2019. We had a virtual meeting in Delhi last year, and this year we would have been in Boston in the U.S., but it's once again, unfortunately, a virtual meeting. And at the Grand Challenges meeting, it, I think it really is in global health a uh, point of connection where scientists come from across the globe there's a particularly strong representation from scientists from lower and middle income countries. And beyond the scientists, we have a lot of government representation, we have regulators, we have companies that join. It really is probably the session at which everybody who has an interest in global health and advancing global health comes to the meeting in some form or other or gets involved. What can you tell us in terms of the sorts of impact that have been seen over the years? Well, we've looked at that in terms of uh, some of the original very large grand challenges that, that we made. Um, and there have been a couple of interesting actual uh, innovations that, that did come out of those big ones. Uh, for instance, an ability to fight against mosquito-borne diseases with this um, intervention, which is known as Wolbachia. 
which uh, impacts the Aedes mosquito, and that came out of one of the early grand challenges. But more than those uh, big awards, we had uh, an initiative called the Grand Challenges Exploration, where essentially anybody can write a two-page application, and then they could get you know $250,000 to implement the idea, the exciting idea. And we've had all manner of interesting ideas, you know, right from delivery. Um, we had an initiative around uh, improving the condom. Um, so all kinds of um, unusual scientific uh, ex explorations have been held through this Grand Challenges exploration. And it's pulled in a lot of people, even, uh, you know, some secondary school pupils have been able to submit projects. Now let's talk about uh, this year annual meeting. The fact that it is in the midst of COVID-19, how has the priority shifted? I think the pandemic, as, as we've all experienced, has really changed our conception of global health and how innovation is done. Uh, certainly the inequity in the distribution of vaccines has given us all a renewed focus in terms of how do we have a more equitable distribution of manufacturing technology and of even scientific innovation at its grassroots so that the situation would never be repeated. So we have these two themes uh, which are interlinked. One, which is recovery from the pandemic. How do we recover to a better place than, than we've been across not just the direct COVID-related issues, but all of the other global health silent epidemics, HIV, TB, malaria, which uh, did not receive this kind of attention before. That recovery. And then also, how do we build an ecosystem that really focuses on local R&D that's led in a very gender equitable way and um, would advance the cause of preventing uh, any kind of lock on resources or uh, groups and regions and countries not having access to both the scientific tools and the actual products that they need. The Gates Foundation is committing this year an initial $50 million towards a new 10-year program uh, to support science and innovation. Why this new support? You know, we've been investing in, in science and innovation since the, the really initiation of the foundation. But, you know, as we look at the recipients, um, often the direct recipients have not been in the countries that we are actually working in. Certainly not enough of the recipients have been in, in those countries. And often there's a kind of flow through, you know, premier institutions get grants, then they have subcontracts to people working in the field and in the countries. And we want to redirect that to have more direct investment in people in country who are often doing the, the real work of, you know, whether it is a scientific clinical study, collecting specimens that are needed for analysis. So, we want to be sure that those people are directly supported. And, you know, that's why this uh, Calestus Tumor Fellowships, the 14 that we'll initiate now, I think will start to change that dynamic. We see in this initiative that there is specific focus on uh, women uh, researchers. Why is it important at this point? You know, in terms of the difficulties that scientists in uh, lower income countries have, in terms of getting the resources that they need to do their science, locally. I mean, a, a lot of people become expatriates and, you know, work in, in, in rich countries, in the premier institutions. But those people who would like to return or want to work in their, their home countries face huge challenges. Within the countries, women face particular barriers from many of the diverse reasons that they face in, in the U.S., but, you know, an additional set of factors in terms of how people look at women in science. So we think that there's a need for a very special effort 
to select a very promising woman. I mean, you, you just have to think about the mRNA vaccine and Caitlin Carrico, you know, who worked so you know, fearlessly from the 1990s on a project that everybody tried to block her from and didn't think was going to have the promise it did. And now it effectively it saves the globe from a, um, and, you know, that application has to save the entire globe, but certainly has been instrumental in combating coronavirus. So we think that there is a cohort of exceptionally promising women scientists out there in low-income countries that we want to identify and we want to support. When this initiative is launched and it's going to be within 10, it's a 10-year program, as I mentioned earlier, what are the anticipated uh, outcomes? What do you hope to see? Well, you know, I, you could, we put the initial 14 uh, selected individuals on our website so you can have a look at their profiles, which I think are, are impressive. But the, the notion is really that we should support them over a longer time frame. So essentially, each of the recipients receives a million dollars over five years. And, you know, that is to invest in their research in the materials that they need and the local infrastructure they need. So we think that, you know, this five-year term is, is important. I mean, it's, you know, sometimes science can take much longer than that even, but five years is certainly a good start. So we'll be watching very carefully how the first 14 cohort progress and what their funding needs are and the blocks that they may uh, experience. And as we plan for the future cohorts, we'll certainly feed that information back into that selection process. And speaking of the selection process, how is it done? What will make someone more noticeable versus the other? Well, I think that, you know, we've worked very closely with um, local scientific leaders, um, and let's say in, in Africa in particular. And, um, you know, I've constituted uh, a scientific advisory committee, which we've had to guide our global health work over the last 10 years uh, with a strong African representation of uh, scientists in particular. And they've been um, invaluable in terms of giving us feedback about where we should look for promising scientists. And when they see somebody they think of as particularly promising, we you know, looked at ways in which we could support their work. So I think you, you have to obviously, you can't be standing outside, uh, even though I, I come from Africa, you know, living and working in Seattle with the Gates Foundation doesn't give me the insight um, look at who really is doing good work and should be supported. What else should we look forward to this year during the Grand Challenge annual meeting? Well, you know, I think that there's the other initiative which um, maybe got a little bit less attention, but what we saw with COVID was the need to track these variants of the virus which arose. And the situation as we found it um, in Africa was that there were about 5,000 sequences of COVID viruses in the GSA database, the international database that was collecting them at a time when there were almost 600,000 samples in there. So 5,000 from Africa in January. And fortuitously, we had kicked off a initiative with the Africa CDC and the head of the Africa CDC, Dr. John Nkengasan, uh, which was around an African Pathogen Genomics Institute that would increase sequencing in Africa. And we had 20 sites. And they quickly turned to sequencing COVID so that, you know, uh, in October, we had 50,000 specimens. So we raised the 5,000 to 50,000. We need to get a lot more. But that was a big improvement. So this is just being able to take samples, sequence them, and say this is the Delta variant or this is the Beta variant of the coronavirus, which is important to know in terms of how you would act. 
there's an, a step beyond that that we're going to invest in, which is that it's very good that you can say, well, oh, we've, we've got a new variant over here of COVID, but how do you know whether it is significant, it's going to evade the immune system of people, it's going to be particularly dangerous. You need a set of additional tools, which, you know, in, in rich countries, people have those tools and they can apply them. So we've selected uh, seven sites, um, most the majority of them in Africa, five of the seven in Africa, where we're going to provide $7 million over the next two years to quickly put in place those immunological monitoring tools, which will give additional ability to be able to track what's going on with the COVID variants or any other variants that may arise. Before we wrap, if there is a big takeaway from this pandemic and the way it has shifted your work with the foundation, what would you say it is? The one thing I would say is that as much as you can plan, and we've done quite a lot of scenario planning, you need to be prepared for the unexpected. And the unexpected can have disastrous consequences like the lack of delivery of vaccines, massive lack of delivery of vaccines to an entire continent. So the only way you can address that is to really have a diversified ecosystem at the scientific and the manufacturing level. That's the only guarantee you'll have that, you know, in, in a world which may have a lot of partitioning of resources, that you're going to be able to address the next crisis, which you're not going to exactly be able to predict what's going to happen. It really is that long-term sustainable solutions that you need to put in place. Thinking at the last minute when something happens is always going to lead to these missteps. Thank you so much, Trevor Mondal. We appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us today. That's great. Thank you, Lenord. That was Dr. Trevor Mondal, president of the Global Health Division at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. That's all for this edition of Health Chat. For the latest news and coverage on the coronavirus pandemic, visit voanews.com. Thank you all for joining us and special thanks to all our affiliate stations throughout Africa for carrying Health Chat. I'm your host, Lino Homudu in Washington.